shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hi, this is Matt Bradley Shergy, host of Sequel Cast 2. And I just wanted to give you a heads up about this week's episode, where uh, the movie we're covering is Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed. But uh, before we start the discussion of Scooby-Doo, you're going to hear a interview I did with author Nathan P. Butler on his uh, latest book coming out. It's a home video guide to the Star Wars saga. It goes in, uh, in such crazy detail, uh, but crazy in a good way, mind you about all the uh, different home video versions of Star Wars that have come out in the United States. It even covers uh, some international things. So we're going to start off the episode uh, with me interviewing Nathan P. Butler on his new book, A Saga on Home Video, A Fan's Guide to U.S. Star Wars Home Video Releases. And then we'll follow that up with the normal Sequel Cast 2 episode on Scooby-Doo 2. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2. We have a, a very special guest here for a little interview to talk about his book. It's author Nathan P. Butler. Fans of Sequel Cast might remember on our old show, we had Nathan on a few years ago to talk about Star Wars 3, or Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Uh, Nathan P. Butler, welcome to Sequel Cast 2. Hey, glad to be here. Absolutely, glad to have you. Uh, and I, I caught your, your book because I follow you on Facebook and Twitter and was noticing some stuff, and I actually was reading through some of it this morning, and I really appreciate how... Uh, in-depth it is, and it, it makes me realize there's a lot more Star Wars and home video than I ever imagined. It's called A Saga on Home Video, a fan's guide to U.S. Star Wars home video releases, and you can get it through Amazon.com, and there's links at uh, Nathan's website at NathanPButler.com. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where this is a type of collecting that a lot of people don't tend to consider collecting. Mm. Um they tend to think that oh you, you just you've got copies of the movies oh wow that's a lot of copies of the movies and the TV shows <laughs> and such but they don't tend to, to to click that over which means that when it comes to you know things like action figures and things like that there's tons of guides out there so it's kind of known even if it's not the specifics of how many different releases there've been for say action figures or whatever it's kind of known wow there's a lot of them mm-hmm. but when it comes to home video there's just not a lot in the way of guides out there which is actually part of what spurred writing the book in the first place. Um, but it means that for people who sort of dive into this home video collecting, it's really a lot of times a shock of just how much is out there. I know I absolutely was for me. I'm still every once in a while I'll run into something I didn't know existed, though thankfully now those tend to be either foreign releases or they tend to be things that uh, are so incredibly rare um, that they just don't get a lot of play. Like there was a, a DVD set in 2005 that was given out only to people who attended the ceremony or uh. high tier people who were, who attended the ceremony when George Lucas was given his AFI life achievement award. And I was like, wait, what? Hmm. So, uh, there's tons out there that people uh, a lot of times don't realize. And I'm hopefully been able to be uh, very extensive in the coverage of those U S releases. So someone who wants to start collecting can actually use the book as a starting point instead of it just being, um, you know, here's a product list to check stuff off so they can actually kind of learn about it as they're collecting. Right. I, um, you know, I used to work retail and I remember there is a limited edition 
re-release of the Star Wars trilogy on videotape around the time Attack of the Clones came out. And it, yeah, they... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I think it had as some exclusive thing, like some videotape of a made-for-TV um, special. C-3PO was on the box. I could be misremembering this, but I think I could be right. Yeah, they've done a lot of reissues. Um, they basically, uh, like in that case, it was probably 2000. Um, because that sounds they were about just right. Gearing yeah. up, they they included a special. It was great. They included a little special um, uh, uh, episode two, the saga continues, little video um, at the end of a new hope in that VHS set, and everybody's like, "Whoa!" I guess it was the beginning. Uh-huh. Um, it's like, "Whoa, man! Baru and Owen are back. How awesome!" And they're in the film for like a combined what two minutes, three minutes. Sure, <laughs> it's uh, getting uh, that... psyched for what's not really the focus. Uh, also, there was, um, I haven't thought about this in a while, I, I think at the time on Fox, they uh, showed the Star Wars movies with these wraparound segments, so C-3PO and R2-D2. Yeah, a lot of the, th- the times that they air them on television, they're, uh, especially when it's a premiere for the first time on a given channel, they tend to do something special with it, whether right. it's little factoids or it's got a, a character introductions and none of that kind of stuff ever makes it to home video so it's I one know, of those things where you gotta just catch it just like specials like from jet was it uh, from star wars to star wars which is a, a documentary about ilm you never see that on home video and yet hmm. it was basically 45 percent uh 45 minutes out of an hour excuse me was basically behind the scenes of the phantom minutes you know and it never shows up on a star wars release there's so much that gets forgotten um, that we're lucky, I guess, that we that we have what we have. I mean, we still don't have all of Ewoks or droids or uh, the god awful holiday special. But do you think we'll ever get that now that Disney has the rights to Star Wars? You know, I I would hope so. Uh-huh. My concern is that if you go back and look at some of the things Kathleen Kennedy said coming out of Celebration in relation to the idea of putting out the original unaltered versions of the films. Uh, on home video, on Blu-ray or 4K or whatever, her response basically was that those are George's and we're not going to go through and tinker with them. And there's sort of this level of still having a respect for whatever Mm. George Lucas wanted. And as long as that permeates, I think they'll still leave the holiday special and such kind of out there in the ether. Maybe droids and Ewoks, but the holiday special probably not. But assuming that Disney really is able to pull off what it seems that they're trying to do and have Star Wars become this thing that just goes on for decades and decades down the line still... At some point, there'll be another leadership change. you got to figure every time there's a leadership change, there's a chance that the approach to and the view of Lucas uh, as the one sort of controlling with his opinions, even if he's not legally in charge anymore, mm. um, has, a pop- has a possibility of changing. So maybe, but I would say not while Kathleen Kennedy is in charge and maybe not even her successor, whoever that might be, depending on how close they were to the whole situation when Lucas was still there. So to misquote uh, Dumb and Dumbers, are you telling me there's a chance? <laughs> yeah, they go, so, you're telling me there's a chance. Yep, so, it's, well, it's a slim one, yeah. Uh-huh. I, I, I was a bit um, uh, surprised but also delighted when, when Disney took over. Pretty quickly, they started re-releasing a lot of the back catalog of Star Wars computer games on uh, GOG and Steam. And then we got things like Star Wars Rebellion and um, Shadows of the Empire mm-hmm. and, and sort of more complete... Uh, release where you can play these things on modern computers which is fun 
Yeah, they've been. I mean, their approach to consumer products is a little bit different than what than what we've seen before. Like, for instance, with home video, 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment still has the license to do all the physical releases of um, the original six Star Wars films. Uh, for A New Hope, it's forever unless mm. they sell the rights back to Disney, and then for the other five it's up until 2020 so you haven't seen much change in terms of the way that those are being approached because that's still the same company that's been doing it for years uh, for decades but they completely changed the approach that we expected from star wars when it came to the force awakens and rogue one because we saw uh, blu-ray 3d releases which we haven't even seen for most of the biggest name disney films it's basically marvel and star wars they're doing but not disney um and we saw multiple retailer exclusive releases, which is, you know, for better or worse, but also uh, digital releases being packed in with the physical releases and digital releases that include all the bonus features. Whereas the only previous attempt at, at uh, digital releases was, you know, we had the live action films get a digital release, but that was through Disney with no physical component because of the companies being different. So it was, you know, it, there, there wasn't it. Uh, the bargain of being able to buy one and get the other for free. And, you know, besides that, the last one was the Clone Wars uh, car- mm. uh, cartoon film. And that was one where it was so long ago that, you know, the digital copy was on a disc that you got and used to go to <laughs> unlock. Um, so it's 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 interesting. That's, and that's one of the things that we see when we're looking at home video for Star Wars just developing over time is that as the companies change – um, when you jump between, say, looking at what 20th Century Fox does with the films, uh, what Disney does with the later films, what J2 Communications tried to do with Ewoks and droids and things like that, or uh, what what was going on with Clone Wars when it was uh, Warner that was putting them out, um, there, there are really feel like there's different philosophies and different approaches to how to put out a successful release between these different companies. And that leads to a, a Star Wars home video library that, is a little scatterbrained, you know. Just it's yeah. you can look at a release and be like, "Wow, this is really bare bones." And this one's got tons of stuff, and they were released so close together. What's going on? And it's, well, depends on what the company thought would sell, pretty much. I'm always uh, interested by what cover art they do when they re-release Star Wars for the upteenth time. You know, the uh, that when uh, they came out with that Blu-ray Star Wars Complete Saga box set of episodes one through six with the bonus features on it. Uh, it, it it had what I thought was frankly uh, amateurish kind of artwork on on the cover of um, I believe Anakin in the you know it just was very weird childlike art like a teenager uh, artwork mm-hmm. and then later you see now Disney they've been re releasing the stuff in the prequel box sets and the original trilogy box sets and it's um, much much different it's like a close up of a guy's a character's face it reminds me a little bit of the artwork on the cover for the uh, home video THX releases uh, on VHS uh, before the special editions came out. Yeah, what's interesting is that that's actually that's 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment still that put out those steel books with the faces on them. Oh, okay. um, it was huh. actually the only yeah. time that they've ever released those films separately like you could get the prequels as a set you could get How the about original okay. trilogy as a set you could get the complete saga as a set and they finally put those out and the consternation with that from fans has been that then disney has continued with the idea of steel books um over here through best buy um hmm. and been like okay well we'll just keep them going a steel book for each film so you, they put out a steel book for the force awakens and it kind of matches the others it's still got a character on the cover but it's not just the face so it doesn't exactly match 
And apparently they must have heard, I guess, enough complaints of people saying, it doesn't match the other ones, even though it's two different companies and there's no requirement <laughs> that they match. Sure, that When sure. they put out Rogue One, they were just like, okay, here's your Rogue One steelbook. There's not, it's not a character face on the cover. It's a bunch of death troopers. Eat that. You know, just kind of a, uh, you want to complain about our steelbooks? Here, here's a steelbook that doesn't even close to match anything. Um, what I think is kind of cool about the steelbooks, though, for those who are, are trying to collect those, you'll see releases that don't have any U.S. equivalent sometimes. And in mm. Japan... And you can order these and have them shipped over here because the Blu-rays are region-free. Um, I order through Amazon Japan. But uh, there's these giant box sets called the Movie Next Premium Limited Box Edition of The Force Awakens and of uh, Rogue One. And they have a steelbook in it, and it's the international one. So there's no text on the cover at all, so they can use oh, it in different nice. regions. Um, there's no text on the spine. It's just character pictures. But it's packaged in this box with... Like a, uh, in, in the case of Rogue One, it's like this exclusive S.H. Fig Arts um, figure of a Death Trooper, this highly articulated figure, plus a little uh, poster-looking cards that you can stick inside a frame that comes with it. You know, all kinds of really cool bonuses in this really nice box set. But over here, there's absolutely nothing equivalent to it at all. Um, so sometimes to find some of the more interesting stuff or some of the steelbooks that are a little more... I don't say clean looking, but just that just look a little bit different. It could be something kind of cool uh, to put in a collection and say, hey, look how this differs from the rest of this stuff. We have to look outside the U.S., which can be pretty expensive depending on which sure. region we're looking at, exchange rates and all that kind of stuff. Thankfully, uh, U.S. collecting, is, which is the, the book's focus at least, um, is a little bit easier to do because at least it's all the same currency and hopefully it's being shipped from a few states over instead of from halfway <laughs> around the world and costing you an arm and a leg. Sure. Uh, I was in uh, Tokyo about 11 years ago with some friends, and uh, in a bookstore they had the Japanese version of, I think it's the Star Wars um, chronology or something, where oh, it, nice. it, it sort of summarized uh, the the books, which are now considered Star Wars Legends, published up until a certain point. And um, the, the artwork, I don't know if you've seen it, Nathan, but the artwork is wonderful Japanese. It's like Japanese doing Western-style artwork of all these different expanded universe characters. And you can put in uh, the the chronology book. It was so big that in Japan they split it up into two volumes. And if you put the two volumes side by side, the front and the back art kind of makes like a four panel uh, compilation artwork of, of the different characters. It's it's pretty neat. Nice. I've always been intrigued by the Japanese art on the. Uh, I mean, not so much the home video because a lot of times those look pretty much the same. Mm. But on the books, like oh yes, yeah, the New Jedi Order stuff. That's right. You know where it's it's. Because, it, and again, it kind of goes back to the same thing. People talk about, well, when you talk about home video, who cares if it's 20th Century Fox or Disney? It's still home video. Well, you know, the company can make a difference. A company and the rights matter. And when it comes to the artwork, I mean, from what I understand, the reason why the Japanese covers can actually do things like use an older Mark Hamill as an example of what Luke might look like <laughs> when he's older, uh -huh. um, at least before before the sequel trilogy, was that likeness rights just work differently over there they sure. can make something that fits it you don't have to have every single book still looking like luke is the same age he was in return of the jedi just with some crow's feet or something you know right um, to, to get more to the, the point of the book with the home video releases the um uh, i recall in oh gee i think 2006 they released uh individual discs of the original trilogy that had an extra dvd in there that was i think just a dupe of the laser disc yeah, pretty much. They took the um, they called it the unaltered edition, which wasn't exactly true. Mm. Uh, they used the 1993 Laserdisc Masters, which was when they did the THX remastering. We tend to think of that as a 1995 thing because that's when it was on VHS. 
but they actually did it for the definitive collection laser discs in 93 and just reused those masters and they just reused them again uh, in 2006 with the exception of swapping out the beginning of a new hope for a really clean uh, scanned in film copy so that there was actually a version that had no a new hope subtitle because there had never been a home video version without the subtitle because they didn't release the first one until uh, 1982 when it was already on there um but yeah i mean they 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 their argument was that it presents an authentic cinematic experience or something like that whereas mm-hmm. the fans are like is this exactly what was in the theater well oh, no well then give us the real thing you know the the fandom rage took it took a break for about a week and then came right back of of give us this give us that um but yeah that's like the second version um audio and video cleanup wise of a empire and jedi and it's the third version of a new hope that had been on home video because they had done a digital mastering kind of cleanup of it back uh, in 85 for the 1986 release Hmm. um which is why all of a sudden instead of it being you know the uh, uh here's where the tractor beam is and everybody just stands around silently looking at the screen and we're like what (laughs) that they actually added c-3po's line back in that explained what the heck was going on uh when ben burke fixed all that um, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a string of re-releases and and reissues of hey, here's some new bonus features, but the same old film. And then when Lucas starts tinkering, uh, in fact, there's actually a sidebar series in the book called a Forever Tinkering. That every yeah. time there's some change to them, it's yep. And here's kind of what the perspective from the fans were on this particular change. Um, I, I think we're still waiting to see if we'll ever see another change to those films because what Kennedy said of of it's Lucas's, we're not going to tinker with. It's like does that mean even the newest version you're not going to tinker with? Or are you just talking you're not going to bring those originals back? Uh, remains well, to be yeah, seen. I mean, what I hope we get someday, and I don't know if this will ever happen, uh, in my mind, uh, an example of a, a good home video release of a film that has had multiple versions was the um, the sort of box set, and it, it's been re-released a few times, of uh, Blade Runner. Where you oh, had, yeah, with all the different... Well, yeah, the yeah, different yeah, you had the U.S. theatrical cut, you had the sort of like a, a European cut that has a few different stuff, you had the director's cut, and then you had the final cut. And the difference between the director's cut and final cut are pretty minor, but I appreciate that they're all on there and they have pretty good documentary features. Yeah, I think that all that it would take, it, it would seem, is there'd have to be some type of deal between 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment or 20th Century Fox uh, and Disney in order to handle the rights of A New Hope and possibly the rights to previous editions of the films. I think that the rights for all the different versions all carry over when that the, the rights transfer in 2020. Um, but I, and I would have said, you know, if this was, you know, a few years ago, I would have said it's impossible, we probably will never see it. But we've seen Disney and Sony strike deals that allow despite the the way the rights issues work, mm. that allows Spider-Man to show up now in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we haven't seen that type of cooperation, really, between Disney and Fox. Like, we're not seeing that, for instance, with the X-Men films or Fantastic Six Four, four. And, yeah. and that kind of thing. But if they can do it with Sony, and that seemed to be such a, you know, for many people, it was a bridge too far. They just would never do that. And yet they did, that maybe, you know, looking forward to the future, we may be able to see that kind of thing um, happen with the Star Wars home video releases. My, my, my immediate instinct would be to say that'd be a great thing for the 50th anniversary. But then you rewind and say, well, yeah, but on the 30th anniversary and on the 40th anniversary, they didn't reissue the films at all. So apparently, those 
10-year anniversaries don't mean a whole lot when it comes to the approach that gets taken to Star Wars home video releases. Mm. Um, I mean, we had Rogue One this year, but we didn't have the original trilogy get released or anything like that again, or the prequels. You look back at 2007, same thing. The re-release was in, in fact... Of 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, the only year that didn't have a re-release of Star Wars DVDs was 2007, the anniversary year. Uh, um, so it's just kind of uh, – predicting what they're going to do is is tricky. But, man, if they can make a deal with Sony for Spider-Man, surely with all the money that could be made off of it. Yeah, that, right. Yeah, even, even if you make it, uh, you know, in very limited quantities or, or do something to – to goose it up, because um, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, home video sales are, are not what they used to be. Um, yeah, I mean, toss a figure in, or just make it something. Yeah, if you yeah, wanna, yeah, right. Sweeten the pot, make it a make it something that you can uh, order online only through Disney, Disney store, side, or sure. you know, Twentieth Century Fox's preferred outlet yep. or something, or right. have them both release it and each of them get a variant cover. So you gotta buy them both if you're a collector, <laughs> um, which tends to be what winds up happening, but. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I think there's it's almost like the the what happens with other Disney films doesn't tell us much at all about how they might handle Star Wars. But if we look at how they handle the Marvel stuff, like with the Blu-ray 3D mm. discs and that sort of thing, um, sure. it really does seem like they're laying a groundwork that we can sort of follow and expect Star Wars uh, to follow the same path that maybe, hopefully, um, there'll be an opening for that. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll get know, some sort of a... Soon. Yeah, maybe we'll get some sort of a deluxe set, kind of like what Marvel did with Phase 1 and Phase 2 after quite some time. With the, you know, it's in a special suitcase or whatever, with the, the, the cover art's different, and uh, and I that sort of thing. Them, I can almost see them just being like, after 2020, you know what? Here's a box set of the Star Wars films. What? It's missing Episode 4? Well, yeah, because 20th Century Fox still has the rights to that one, but whatever. <laughs> because if you look at, um, if you look at uh, Disney Movies Anywhere, which is their digital outlet for, okay. uh, for films... Yeah. You can get all but a new hope on Disney movies anywhere. Oh, weird. So is, is because... I, I haven't used Disney movies anywhere. Is that like a streaming service or you just it's uh, just a place, a, a digital streaming. locker to it's a it's a streaming service where you can actually buy films through. And I actually like it. I don't use this Disney movies anywhere itself very much, uh-huh. um, but you can do redemption of your digital copies through there and whatnot. And you can link that to your iTunes account, your uh, oh, Amazon okay. video account, Google Play. And what happens is, as long as Disney owns the rights to that film, it will synchronize to all those other services so you're not buying them multiple times or anything. So, for hmm. for instance, if, if back in 2015 you bought the digital movie collection of the uh, uh, original six Star Wars films, then you synchronized your account, say for iTunes, which is what I did, and you synchronized your accounts with Disney Movies Anywhere, all but A New Hope then show up on Disney Movies Anywhere and Google Play and elsewhere because uh, of this whole synchronicity between them. I think Disney Movies Anywhere, if nothing else, just for that, has been a fantastic thing to to enter the digital marketplace because really with the exception, I mean, even Microsoft Video does. I think the only major platform for digital streaming film that we see uh, people tend to use most often that's not synchronized through it is PlayStation Network. Yeah. Um, that's which always... is Sony, which is a whole Sony Disney thing. Again, sure. Probably. Sony does. Uh... <sighs> Don't get me started. So, I mean, I, I like Sony for some things, but uh, they've always been about proprietary stuff and being somehow both stingy and not stingy at the same time. It's a bit um, mystifying. I... Although I, 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 as soon as they gave me the ability to watch Blu-ray 3Ds on PlayStation VR headset, I'm like, okay, everybody, 
all is forgiven. Oh, wow. I didn't know they did that. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, the newest uh, firmware update for the PlayStation 4 and for the PlayStation VR lets you huh. watch 3D Blu-rays. Although, it's a solitary experience because it's you with the headset on. Of course. Uh, but it's another way to watch now that they've stopped making uh, uh, TVs with 3D capability now. And it's either sure. PSVR, old TV, or projector. So right. something. Um, do you feel there's a better Star Wars uh, bonus feature than the documentary The Beginning from the Phantom Menace DVD? Oh, I mean, I think there's been better sort of libraries of bonus features, like the breadth and scope of the bonus features mm. that we got for the complete saga. Sure. But when it comes to one specific bonus feature, right? not really. I mean, I had high hopes that that's what we would get with The Force Awakens. Um, and it has a pretty good documentary with it, and then some other ones that tie into it, but um, it, it doesn't feel quite as candid as it, that one it, did. Exactly. But, I mean, there's there's moments of, you know, uh, Lucas basically saying, like, oh, shit, where they're watching the exactly. rough cut of Phantom Menace, like, this isn't working. Uh, exactly, and it's got, you know, and it has that great moment um, that still stands out, you know, the, uh, the yeah. uh, all I need is an idea, and we're sitting there going, but had ideas since then. Oh, no! It kind of, kind of breaks that illusion, but, you know, we should have already known that from the guy that said there was going to be one film, and then it was going to be 12 starting with A New Hope, and then 9 with A New Hope is 4, and then there was only ever going to be 6, and then it was, well, I said I wasn't going to make any more. I didn't say somebody else couldn't. We're just like, uh... George, just... It, it, it's it, in the South. We would we would pat him and say, "Bless your heart," which is a nice way of saying you out your mind. Bye. Yeah. Uh, gee, we just got a few more questions here. I'm sorry, this is running a bit over, but um, oh, no problem. Okay, great. Uh, so uh, one constant about home video is the formats keep on changing, and there's the mm -hmm. current 4K format. I, I don't even know what the official name is. It Blu-ray 4K. I don't even know what the official name is. I've heard it called Blu-ray 4K, yeah. Ultra Blu-ray, Ultra, uh, okay. UHD, etc. Oh, gee, okay, so they haven't really settled. That's confusing. Um, do you the, ones the black and silver cases? Those things. Yeah, the black and silver cases that cost thirty bucks or, or so. Um, I, I don't have a player that supports that. Considering that there's a lot of stuff on Blu-ray, you know, never even got released on Blu-ray that was on DVD. Mm -hmm. For me, 4K, I don't think is terribly appealing but what are your thoughts on what you think the future might be for the 4k disc format because we're in a very interesting uh, transitionary stage as we see streaming or digital downloads um sort, sort of picking up in physical media while it's still around um it seems to be almost more of a a, a premium or more of a niche uh, market yeah i mean it's hard to say um you know, in the past with Star Wars, we've had, even during that so-called great format war, it was like Star Wars was showing up on everything. You had VHS yeah. and Betamax and Laserdisc and CED, and in other markets you had the VHD, and then eventually it was VCD, and then DVD, yeah. and then Blu-ray, and Blu-ray 3D. But the last time there was a so-called format war type of competition, it was Blu-ray versus uh, HD DVD. And we never saw a release on HD DVD. Because by the mm. time... Oh, there's... Just let that go. Let me say that again because the doorbell rang. Um, we never saw a release on HD DVD, and it, it was like it kind of skipped over that chunk of that format war. Um, and and that was mainly because Star Wars tends to be late to the party as far as getting something out on a new format. Um, so it's been a while since we saw the premiere of, of Ultra HD or 4K or whatever you want to call it. And we haven't seen a Star Wars release yet. 
I would hope that we will at some point soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're in that era in which digital tends to be what people are going for, and the physical media tends to be for those who either are collecting mm-hmm. or the people who are just concerned that if I buy something digitally, maybe at some point I'll lose access. Like, what if this company goes out of business? Kind of the same thing of, you know, well, I don't want to move to ebooks because what if Amazon, if I buy a Kindle, what if they someday go out of business? Um, and it turns out some of those fears, at least from a licensing standpoint, were were alleviated because we did see back when Dark Horse lost the Star Wars comic book license to uh, to Marvel that even though now the books are being purchased on the Comixology app, which is an Amazon thing, um, you still have access to your old purchases on the Dark Horse app. You just can't buy new ones. Oh. So as long as there's some kind of server still there, in theory, sure. you still have access to your stuff. But as people become more comfortable with that, I think we're seeing less and less of a drive for uh, physical releases. I, that's probably why we've got so many different variants being released, because they need to have something to draw people to an individual store to buy it physically instead of digital. Same thing with you know, video games and places like GameStop doing tons of you know, pre-order incentives. Mm, buy it from mm-hmm. us and you'll get this extra thing. Um, I would hope we'll see a release at some point on 4K, even if it's just the newer films. Uh, it's... It, I imagine it's still probably going to be a matter of years, probably, because they that Disney just doesn't seem to be embracing that as much, and Star Wars has always lagged behind uh, in that regard. My concern would be, you know, if it... I, I guess my biggest concern about the 4K stuff, one is that it's kind of like what we saw back with Blu-ray in that people would need to buy 4K TVs just like yes, you would need to buy right. an HD television. So that adds to the cost beyond a player... But a big push of Blu-ray um, back in the day was that the PlayStation 3 was a Blu-ray player. So you had this mm-hmm. idea that there was this massive installed base out there, as they called it, of people who already had a player who just needed a TV to be able to watch these Blu-rays or would even be watching on a standard definition TV without getting the benefit of the better picture but still able to watch all the cool bonus features. Um, what we're seeing with the gaming systems now, I mean, one, there's not a new major system coming soon. Um, none of the Nintendo systems currently have the ability to play even Blu-ray. Um, but you look at what they've done, and they've up. there's an upgraded version of the PS4 now called the PlayStation 4 Pro, and there's yeah. one coming for the Xbox One. And while the Xbox One upgrade is going to be able to play 4K discs, from what I understand, the PlayStation 4 Pro can play 4K content, but not the discs, only streaming. So a big part of that installed base thing that helped Blu-ray get propelled so much isn't there this time, um, which really kind of has me sitting back and wondering whether or not we're going to see another format before we get to a point of a Star Wars 4K release. Like, is there going to be something even beyond oh, that interesting. before Star Wars even gets around to it and sees the potential for it um, that we wind up with something being skipped like HD DVD got skipped? Right. I don't, you know... Uh... I'd, I'd think of a Yoda f- a quote about the future, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, yeah, always in motion, motion is the future, Very and unfortunately, um, yeah. um, motion sickness is a is a real possibility. <laughs> um, have you seen the trailer for Star Wars Battlefront Two? I have, I have. We, uh, uh, I'm, I was. I, I do a podcast, Cloud City Casino, with Michael Morris, where we talk about Star Wars gaming, and we've been very vocal. I think in our uh, in, in our view of the first Battlefront and the flaws of right. that game, although there was still some fun to be had. and uh, But this one, that new trailer, I mean, story, they're bringing over the Imperial Raider from X-Wing and the Fantasy Flight game stuff into 
a video game. Um, the idea of seeing it from the Imperial perspective, it's it's looking pretty sweet, but I think we've reached the point where it's sort of a, uh, you know, EA will believe it when we see it. We'll, be, we'll believe it when we play it. Yeah, on a, an EA earnings call uh, recently um, for the latest quarter, I don't know if it's second or third quarter or whatever it is, they said um, EA, or out of the box, Star Wars Battlefront 2 will have three times the content as Star Wars Battlefront. So Sweet. So, take, so, so to take that what you will. Very little. Right. It is still, so it'll be... <laughs> I, I think it'll be what people expected the the newer Battlefront, you know, Battlefront One mm-hmm. to be in the first place. Um, and I, I I like that it seems at least with multiplayer. I don't know how it's going to work in the single player campaign. That there's stuff that takes place in the prequel era, the original trilogy, mm-hmm. and the newer stuff. So it's uh, should have some more variety there as far as heroes and um, playing fields. Yeah, I'm cautiously optimistic about it. I mean, we've got, I mean, just the idea of them telling a story, they're, they're, they seem to be telling a story, and I'm more for the story side than the multiplayer side. Sure. But they, they seem to be telling a story that's going to interweave at least to some degree with what we got with uh, Aftermath Empire's End and such, where, hmm. and to an extent, Bloodline, where we're going to see sort of the, uh, the transformation of this individual going from the Empire to the First Order. Um, we tend to think of the Empire, oh, well, the Empire just became the First Order. Well, to a degree, but if you read Empire's End, it was much more that the plan was, you know, take the strongest out of the Empire and get them to restart something new and just, you know, kind of wipe out everything that's left. You know, like, uh, uh, my, I need to go get a new house, so let's take the good furniture out of this one and just burn it down, uh, being sort of the Emperor's plan. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that in a way that we can interact with as a player and sort of have some investment in this character and get a feel like we're sort of taking the journey uh, with her. But it feels like, I mean, a lot of the stuff that they talk about, uh, you know, character classes and things like that, it seems like a lot of the things people were concerned about with the first Battlefront because of how different it was from the original Battlefront games is is being addressed. And they've said that they've had content that they were already starting to work on for this game really since right around the time that the first one came out, hmm. which suggests to me that maybe a longer development cycle without a, a set deadline that causes any rushing like with the first one, maybe um, is going to give them a chance to really sort of live up to the the promise of it. But and I, I kind of feel like the uh, I, I, it goes back to the whole Bush thing. The, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, uh, fool won't get fooled again, or whatever it was that he said. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, misquoted. Kind of a, but... eh, we'll see, you know. So uh, your book, A Saga on Home Video, a fan side to U.S. Star Wars home video releases, is available on Amazon.com, and you can also find it at NathanPButler.com. I really like what I've uh, looked at the book uh, so far. In fact, I just ordered myself a copy, so I should be getting that in next week. Uh, So uh, thanks for coming on the show. One last thing, because I need to tie this into my show, Sequel Cast 2, uh, we currently are looking at the live-action Scooby-Doo movies. Nice. And um, before we started recording, you mentioned you had cut bits and pieces of them on TV. Uh, just r- really quick as we wrap up here, a- any thoughts on Scooby-Doo in general, and then any thoughts on what clips you've seen of these movies? Uh, I've seen I've seen probably more of the first one than I have of any of the sequels. My, sure. my wife is the Scooby-Doo fan of the house to a large degree, and I think what struck me about it um, I don't know that I that I caught much of the story at all, but just the idea. I, I'm surprised at how well it translated over into movie form, mm-hmm. um, and I think their casting was fantastic. Um, I mean, having of all people, I mean Matthew Lillard, 
playing Shaggy. It's yeah. Like, this he is Shaggy. That's I mean, right. it's, and it's a it's a weird transformation because I know him best as as Stu Mocker from the first Scream, you know. Sure. Um, but seeing him in this, um, I mean, it feels so different. It's very much like you know Skeet Ulrich, you know, coming from that uh, from the original Scream, also coming to now being the head of the snakes or the serpents or whatever on a Riverdale. It just it feels like you know a, this massive gulf of characterization because of how well they're pulling it off. Um, and it's interesting now as a Star Wars fan looking back at it because, of course, we have Freddie Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar both being in it. And now they've sort of, you know, at the time that that movie came out, it was, oh, hey, it's the guy from Wing Commander and Buffy. <laughs> and now it's kind of looking at it like, oh, my God, it's Kanan and the Seventh Sister, you know. <laughs> um, so I feel like if if we went back and actually dove into them a bit more, if 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 she indulged me with going through probably marathoning these things, I have the feeling that uh, <laughs> I'd feel more of a connection to them. But I was I was pleasantly surprised at, at how well they they carried over because i i mean this was because this was what the, the the first one came out in the early 2000s right like 2001 yeah, i think 2002 was the first one the second one was 2004 um yeah i mean that's not really a time when we would have we would have bet on them being able to pull off scooby in a realistic way um interacting with these other right yeah actors, so, so certainly with the effects um they the, the fur texture wasn't as good as it as it could have been but on the other hand you're I mean, Scooby-Doo in the original cartoon is a pretty simple design. And apart mm-hmm. from the sort of baffling decision to make Scooby-Doo in the live-action movies have, like, human-like eyes, um, it, it it works well enough, I think, for what they're trying to do. But you're right. If they were to reboot Scooby-Doo as sort of a big-budget feature film, which I'm a bit surprised they haven't done, uh, considering it's, it's a property that's been around for, uh, I don't know, over 50 years, perhaps? I don't know. It's been a while. Um you could make Scooby-Doo look, uh, blend in better with the live action elements. I'd be afraid of a reboot of something like Scooby-Doo now. I'd, I'd be like, <laughs> in a world with with dogs that want cookies, it's the zombie apocalypse or something crazy, you know? It'd be like, like we can't just do just straight Scooby-Doo. We have to do, we have to take it up 20 notches. Uh, uh, Scooby-Doo by Michael Bay or something where there's explosions everywhere. Um, right, I love that yeah. video on YouTube a few years ago that was My Little Pony directed by Michael Bay. Yes. And yes. Uh, they did a pretty good job with the effects. Right, or you could do, if you were to do like a gritty uh, Deadpool-style you know, reboot, you could have the movie open with Scooby-Doo getting shot in the head with a shotgun at point-blank range. And then the yeah, like uh, have like <laughs> have have Shaggy instead take more instead of more of the uh, the uh, oh well he's just kind of he strikes you as sort of the druggy character who's who's all laid back and and until he gets panicked he could be more of like the Breaking Bad type of character oh sure yeah he has a, a business on the side God there, there the, you go and the, then the you know, bodies in the closet and everything oh the choices are endless uh, any um any more books that you're working on. Uh, right now, that's it. I've actually um, there is one coming out soon that has something I wrote in it, but that was submitted a while back. Um, I've been writing essays, uh, one each for these books coming out through Sequart, the Sequential Art Organization. It's s e q u a r t dot org. Oh, okay. Uh, not sure if that's how it sounds or not. Um, but Sequart uh, has been doing this series of Star Wars essay collections. They've got huh. a long time ago exploring the Star Wars cinematic universe that came out a couple of years ago. Had an essay in there. Uh, sort of breaking down the first season of Rebels, and then they had uh, Galaxy Far, Far Away exploring Star Wars comics, where I had an essay in there that broke down basically the Marvel comic stuff 
up through their adaptation of The Empire Strikes Back in the 70s and 80s. And then uh, I actually had a distinct honor for the newest one, which will come out later this year, uh, called A More Civilized Age, which is going to look at, the, at more of the books. Mm. Uh, since it was the end of the series, I was I got the okay to write an afterword for the series. It's basically um, the theme being um, that if you're going to criticize Star Wars and be and and break it down into its constituent pieces, some might get annoyed by that and say, you know, I find your lack of faith disturbing. But our perspective is I find your lack of blind faith refreshing, mm. this idea that criticism is a good thing. Sure. And it can be a way of showing love. And uh, I only realized after the fact, after I wrote that af- that uh, afterward to sort of sort of tie up the series in a neat little bow, was that I was writing an afterward that would be opposite a, a forward in that book by Timothy Zahn. So I, I was able to uh, kind of have the honor of being able to be an end cap with you know the guy that in, in many ways sort of made – the EU what it was That's originally right. back in 90 to, uh, 91 to 93 with his Thrawn trilogy. Yeah, I have a real soft spot for A.C. Crispin's Han Solo trilogy. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was... Uh, it was just well done. It was a, an era, a time period you didn't see covered a whole lot. I think those and some of the X-Wing books might be some of my favorites. Um, yeah, it's interesting. They're taking, a, they're taking an approach a lot like the Han Solo trilogy in a lot of the newer books because they're doing such character studies that mm. cover cover lifetimes instead of it just being this particular bombastic event. I mean, we complain as readers a lot of the time that a lot of the meaningful stuff is happening on screen instead of in the books anymore. But, you know, when it comes to Star Wars character studies in depth like Thrawn or Tarkin, I mean, we, we never really saw much of that outside of the Han Solo trilogy in the previous continuity, so those who really were able to appreciate that, I mean, it's a nice ground for that type of storytelling happening now. As long as they give us a freaking time period when the book takes place and don't leave it vague, but that's the <laughs> chronology guy and me talking and pulling his hair out. Sure. Well, uh, Nathan, thanks so much for coming on uh, Sequel Cast 2 to talk about your book, A Saga on Home Video, A Fan's Guide to U.S. Star Wars Home Video Releases. It's available from NathanPButler.com. You can also find it on Amazon. Um... Any any last words you want to say about the book? Why why should someone uh, pick up the book? All right, let's see. Uh, what's the sales pitch? Um, <laughs> I would say uh, it does cover the U.S. releases in extensive detail. Um, it's the first 40 years, basically, May of 77 to May of 2017. So we're talking the original films, uh, the television series, all the way up through Rogue One. And I think what stands out about this one, if you're looking for a history, if you're looking for something that can be read as a book rather than just product listings, this is this is the book you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked at a lot of, of different collecting guides out there, and they tended to provide a tiny bit of info, a picture, a product name, and that was it most of the time. That it's just basically meant to check things off of your list. And this does have a checklist in the back, but being someone who's uh, – my primary job is I'm a, a teacher, and I teach, among other things, history. I love the idea of the history and development of this stuff. So it's actually written, this almost 300-page book is written as a history of Star Wars on home video in the U.S. and the development and the stories behind it, the changes behind it. So uh, much more than simple product listings, which I think is probably the biggest uh, selling point. And hey, the cover looks like a VHS tape, so how can you go wrong with that? In fact, if you stick it in your VHS player, you get a special message. Yeah, the message being that you now have <laughs> have ripped up paper inside your player and must go buy a new VCR. Yes. All right, great. Well, uh, thanks again, Nate. This was a uh, this was a lot of fun. And uh, again, you can get the book A Saga on Home Video: A Fan's Guide to U.S. Star Wars Home Video Releases from NathanPButler.com. Thank you for having me. Oh, anytime. 
Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, listeners. Well, I'm ready to rule a broadcast. Oh, yeah, this time we're looking at Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Unleashed, came out in 2004, directed by Roger Gosnell, written by James Gunn, based on the cartoon by Joe Ruby and Ken Spears, starring uh, much of the cast of the first film. You have Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar, Linda Cardellini, and Matthew Lillard. There's also Seth Green, Peter Boyle, Tim Blake Nelson, Alicia Silverstone, and Neil Fanning, returning as the voice of Scooby-Doo. Music by David Newman, cinematography by Oliver Wood, edited by... Kent Beta, um, off a budget of, according to Box Office Mojo, $25 million. That seems a bit low. Um, it has a box office of $181 million. So it did about $100 million less than the first one. And even though a Scooby-Doo 3 was greenlit during production of Scooby-Doo 2, they just ended up not making it because this wasn't quite as profitable as uh, they thought it would be. Well, it kind of, you could consider it kind of got half made because the Cartoon Network did a TV movie called like Scooby-Doo, The Adventure Begins or The Mystery Begins, which was like an origin story for the Scooby team. Uh, and it led to a short-lived live-action Scooby-Doo series that they aired for about a year, year and a half. I mean, they were supposed to do a third one with this cast. Originally was the the plan, and then that didn't happen. But you're right, they did make some live-action ones that we're not talking about here. Um, Scooby-Doo 2, I did not see this in theaters. What about you, Thrasher? <laughs> Neither did I. I did not see it until a few days ago when I watched it in preparation for this uh, this show. Although, I did uh, I, I did see, like, a scene. It was on cable. I don't know when this was, but there was a scene I recognized, so I must have I must have come across this and, and, and bypassed it. Do you think they ever considered calling it scooby 2? Oh, that had to have been pitched. And it is strange they went with Monsters Unleashed as opposed to Scooby-2. The, the, the pun, the leash pun doesn't have as much punch as Scooby-2. Oh, I didn't even think about the leash pun, of Although course. Although the, tag, um, the tagline, though, is Got Monsters. Like, no, like, Got Milk was passe by this point. If you're going to... You use monsters, the monsters are unleashed. Use that. Although, as I recall, in the TV ads, the the t- uh, the the tagline was, this time the monsters are real. Which, they were real last time. But maybe they right. people didn't see that movie. The other thing that's weird is um, looking and seeing... Uh, the posters look quite similar to that of the first film, and that it's the characters sort of in these poses against a a mostly solid colored background with some gradient like it i could see people seeing this poster and thinking it was just the first movie um <laughs> some people have uh, compared scooby-doo monsters unleashed to uh another recent live action uh kids sequel movie to um the um teenage mutant ninja turtles out of the shadows really because scooby-doo 2 got better reviews than the original and yet it earned a lot less. Oh, huh. okay, I can see a parallel there. So, um, let's go over the characters, then we'll go into the plot as we do, and so forth. As we Scooby-Doo. As we Scooby-Doo. Um, so, as I mentioned, you know, much of the original cast returns, which is nice. It's always strange in a sequel when one of the main people is played by someone else, and you don't really have that here. Uh, Freddie Prince Jr., 
is back as Fred, and I think he's better in this than in the first one. Well, they give, they give more him confident. more of a distinct personality by making him a, a glory hound, and it, and it gives him a real arc, which is nice. Yeah, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar, uh, who, who got married to Freddie Prince Jr. by this time, is, is Daphne. I think she had, she seemed to me to have less to do in this movie for some reason. Well, it's because they forgot that she was a trained martial artist in this film. Yeah, I guess she doesn't get as much of the action as in the first one. Uh, Matthew Lillard is back as Shaggy. Oh, he is who, a treat. Um, he's a treat, but I think they used him better uh, in the first film. It's strange. I think this one has a better story, but there's stuff for the first film that I like more in retrospect after watching the second one, so we'll have to discuss that. Um Linda Cardellini as Velma has a lot more to do in this one. Yeah. She gets to be a detective and she gets the romance. Yeah, you know, she had a bit of a romance in the original, but it, it's not much. She sort of flirts a little bit with the guy, but here that's more of a subplot. And, of course, uh, the, she has flirtations with Patrick, who is played by Seth Green. It's delightful to see him uh, leading a film. It's just tailor-made for him to be in a live-action Scooby-Doo movie. I mean, Seth Green makes sense. I wondered if they also, you know, thought about trying to get Jack Black for a part. It's another one of those actors that you would expect to show up in something like this. Well, uh, in another age, I could see Jack Black playing Shaggy, but that age is past. Oh, there you go, right. Yeah. Uh, Peter Boyle was uh, Old Man Wickles. Perfectly cast as the as a crooked old man from a Scooby-Doo cartoon. Yeah, no, I know Peter Boyle best from the uh, the monster in Young Frankenstein, but he also was the father on uh, Everybody, uh, Everybody Loves, Loves Raymond. Raymond. Yep. Yeah. But he's done so many roles over the years. Tim Blake Nelson is Dr. Jacobo. I think he's pretty almost unrecognizable. Yeah, if you didn't, if they, they put him in so much wit makeup and a wonderful fright wig that you wouldn't know it was him. <laughs> Alicia Silverstone. Which, once again, this is a very 90s movie, despite the fact that it came out in the middle of the 2000s. Yeah, this was well after uh, Clueless and Batman and Robin and some of those other things she was in. But, I mean, she fits with the other... You know, she was popular along the same times as, like, uh, Freddie Prince Jr. and Matthew Lillard were. She's not out of place. She plays a reporter, Heather Jasper Howe. A reporter um, with a secret, as we will learn. Yes, and you know that's that's the cast uh, pretty much, and then again we get Neil, the voice of Neil Fanning as Scooby Doo, which again it boggles my mind that they don't get Frank Welker to do the voice. It also boggles my mind even further that Frank Welker doesn't do any voices in this film. But you, you said he did some voices in the first film. Yeah, of the, he, the he, monsters. Did, he did some generic monster and animal voices in the first film. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so this time around, Scooby-Doo 2, it... Well, it starts with the Mysteries, Inc. at the top of their game. That's right. Like, in a lot of ways, this probably should have been the, the story for the first for the first movie, because it begins um, with the, the, Mysteries, the Mysteries, Inc. gang uh, are returning to their hometown of Coolsville. Uh, and now, is that from the show? Yes. I don't know if it was part, like, like I don't know if it was part of the original Bible for the series, like Shaggy's name, Norville Rogers, or uh, Mysteries Incorporated. Um, I know the first time that it's called out is in the animated series, A Pup Named Scooby-Doo. 
Okay. And that's how it kind of became a big part of the, the canon of the fandom. But they, they've returned to their hometown because their hometown's history museum has a, an exhibit based on their exploits. They're going to be displaying all of the costumes from all the fraudulent monsters, which is a great idea. That's a great setup. And I'm guessing these are actual monsters from episodes of the cartoon. Yes, uh, the all of the monsters uh, are monsters from the first two seasons of Scooby Doo. They only like I think they only name check Minor Forty Niner, the uh, Captain Cutler, and uh, the uh, Chicken Stein. The, oh, the and the One Thousand Watt Ghost. Although it's it's funny, it's kind of funny some of the ones they choose because I feel like I feel like they should have used the Freaky Robot and the Astronaut Ghost. Just because mm. those look, those look kind of in my mind, those look creepier than a lot of the ones they chose. I think they chose Minor Forty Nine er because that's the one most people could name. Uh, Captain Cutler because he's in the intro, but the robots in the intro they don't use him. <laughs> like the, the, this isn't the menagerie of monsters I would have chosen. Although they did choose some cool ones, I like that they used the tar ghost. I mean, it was a bit strange for me as someone who's only, you know, who's only seen maybe a handful of episodes of Scooby-Doo. I didn't recognize any of these monsters, and you, you don't get very much context for the monster. Why are these the monsters in the museum? Yeah, you right? kind of have to to be a fan, and and I, uh, and they did put in some detail, like we we. You know, we talk about the monsters we see, but in the background of the museum, we do see the robot, and we do see the astronaut ghost, and we do see we see a we see a huge Scooby Doo menagerie. It's just we only see like five of them, uh, you know, actually up in action. And I think that's one thing this movie probably should have done to provide a little more context and a little more stuff for the fans. Is when they start talking about the monsters, they ought to do flashbacks to when they unmasked the monsters earlier in the, earlier in their careers, and you could recreate some classic Scooby Doo moments. But that would also be a great way to put in cameos because Scooby Doo's been around for so long at this point. You know, there have to be big names in Hollywood who would be like, "I get to be unmasked in Scooby Doo. I'm there." Right, and that would have been a better way to do the opening credits as opposed to you get to see the pterodactyl flying through the city. It's a scene that looks like it's begging to be rendered in 3D. It doesn't it? And yeah, this was before the whole 3D thing took off again. It's um, it is really, you know, aside the opening credits aren't great, but you're right. You get to see all the different monsters on display. They're um, I like they show up in a limousine that looks like the Mystery Incorporated band. I love the I love that look, and I I love that they're all wearing like high fashion versions of their traditional outfit. Particularly Shaggy, who comes out. You know, Shaggy would always wear the baggy T-shirt, the corduroy pants. I love that he's wearing a suit made of corduroy with like the green ruffled '70s tuxedo. It's so wonderfully period. And we get uh, introduced to Heather Jasper Howe, who's played by Alicia Silverstone. And she is, you know, it's sort of like a, I mean, again, this is a very 90s sort of character, the the smarmy tabloid journalist. Yeah, she, she's, a, she's a local reporter who has it in for the Mysteries Incorporated gang, and it sets up one of the movie's better running gags that, unfortunately, I think they only hit twice, where she records Freddy saying something, then plays it out of context to make him look like the world's biggest asshole. Right, and it's funny where he realizes he says something bad like in the middle after saying yeah, you probably like, want me to say something stupid like i think coolsville sucks wait no don't don't play don't that. use that yeah <laughs> and that's all yeah, they play that's a nice moment um 
So, I mean, what do you, what do you think about the main bad guy in this one? Okay, um, do, do you mind if we get spoilery this early on? I, I don't. I mean, we should also point out it is a bit of a, a whodunit, I think, more so than the first film. And they have reason for you to suspect different people. And I was surprised with uh, when they revealed who it was. Yeah, so so early on, because the first monster that attacks, that like the first, you know, quote-unquote costume that comes to life and attacks, uh, it is, uh, it's the pterodactyl ghost. And they have a flashback to when they unmasked the pterodactyl ghost, who was a Dr. Jonathan Jacobo, who was stealing money to fund his, his research. And they even talk about how Jonathan Jacobo died while escaping from prison, but they never found the body. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, well, it can't possibly be him, because that would be too goddamn obvious. So in the end, there's this new monster that doesn't even give a name. I think it's just in the credits as evil masked figure. It's like this sort of cybernetic ghost that's always taunting them and is, is coordinating the activities of the other monsters. When they finally catch this figure and unmask them, uh, it's Heather Jasper Howe, the reporter who has it in for them. But then they unmask Heather Jasper Howe, and it's Jonathan Jacobo. And this er, this is already after a huge scene loaded with evidence that sets up Seth Green's uh, Patrick Wisley uh, as the mo- as the ringleader of the monsters. So the way the ending wraps up, it feels like Seth Green was supposed to be the bad guy, but then a test audiences didn't like it or didn't get it, so they shoehorned in this Jonathan Jacobo thing so that they could have a different villain. Right. It's um cuz Seth Green they have a few scenes sort of pointing him out where he you know he's in the shadows he looks kind of sinister he's he's yelling at people he's had access he to all this... the costumes and he knows everything about right he's incorporated and but the thing that does it there's a scene where where uh velma where velma finds an evidence dungeon and in the evidence dungeon is film of seth green getting into this screaming argument with a group of academics and like seth green even sees her and does the whole like the whole like right out of right out of a, a cheesy horror movie, what have you found? This is not what you think. Let me help you. Like he so clearly he's supposed to be who the villain is, but then that never gets resolved. We don't know who filmed that film, why he's in it. Right, and we mentioned you know different characters had different arcs in this with um, Shaggy and Scooby. Shaggy feels like he sort of lets down the team a lot, so he wants to him and. Uh, Scooby are going to be detectives. Yeah, and they basically, they try to be good at everything the rest of the Mystery Incorporated team is about. And I love seeing them overcompensate and try to be detectives and try to be all super serious. At one point, they even dress like uh, Velma and Fred. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice scene. Strange looking. Uh, in the in the film we covered last week, the first uh, Scooby-Doo, you complained a bit about the CG. What do you, How do you think it looks in this It picture? looks better, and the rendering of Scooby-Doo, uh, like, it's it's not like they've had a graphics upgrade. I think it all comes down to character animation. They allow Scooby to act more like an animated dog, uh, and that helps. It takes away the whole uh, animatronic wrapped in dog skin. It takes that element away. So overall, I, I prefer the way Scooby appears in this film. Well, and the monsters in this one look much better than the monsters we got in the first one. Yes and no. I mean, they're they're very obviously CGI. I, I wished an effort had been made to make... Because we do see the monster costumes that look really cool, like built up. 
I, when the monsters start attacking, I wish they didn't switch to CGI. It could really keep us guessing if we were seeing the costumes, you know, going out and smashing things and attacking people. But once it's CGI, then, well, it's clearly not a guy in a suit. It's doing impossible things. I did like a gag where Shaggy and Scooby go undercover to a bar that's full of bad guys. Yeah, there's a there's a dive bar called the Faux Ghost, and all of its patrons are people the Scooby gang has unmasked. And not just that, the, the outfit that Shaggy and Scooby pick is really bad, but they don't seem to catch on until we get this well, dumb dress, dance sequence. They dress like pimps. <laughs> it's great. But like Scooby-Doo with the afro, like no one catches on. And this is, I mean, this really feels like an old cartoon well, where they do a dance sequence and the wig flops off. Well, well that's, that's a, a piece of shtick that was missing from the first movie because one of the running gags in Scooby-Doo is, you know, Shaggy and Scooby are cowards. They get chased by the monsters, but there always comes, there almost always comes a point where they get backed into a corner and out of desperation, they put on costumes and do some sort of shtick to distract the monsters, like pretend to be barbers and giving them a shave or pretending to be waiters and serving a vampire a bunch of garlic laced Italian food which is a great bit I used to quote that bit all the time Shaggy just leans in hello monsieur breathing his garlic breath on Dracula and then we huh. finally we didn't get that in the first film we finally get it here so like I'm glad we got that final piece of the Scooby-Doo shtick puzzle Not just that, it's, it feels like overall the directing in this movie is better than in the original. You, uh, The scenes look more dynamic, it's less flat on shooting the stuff straight on. And more so than that, I had, I had some pretty severe criticisms of the production design in the first film. Real efforts being made in this film to make all of the set pieces look like look like they're from an episode of Scooby-Doo. The same kind of slightly exaggerated, almost Alex Toth-like backgrounds. Uh, it, it, it had kind of everything you want in a Scooby-Doo set piece, except a hallway full of doors and a, rep and a repeat pan. I also appreciated in this movie how the score... Uh, I mean, sometimes it sounds like it's ripping off Danny Elfman with all the chanting choirs, but... It doesn't rely on the Scooby Doo theme nearly as heavily as the original. Yeah, they're they're much they're much more sparing. In fact, the only time I really remember the they're using the Scooby Doo melody standing out is the scene where they're escaping they're escaping from the old mine and Shaggy and Scooby are on those trash can lids, uh, kind of skiing down the side of a hill. I think they also have a bit at the end where uh, Scooby gets the um, fire extinguisher. Hmm. And, and uses it on the blob. Oh, yeah. I think they might use it there as well. Uh, one well, thing I did like is you have a scene where Scooby and Shaggy are dancing, and they're, they're singing the uh, Sinatra classic Strangers in the Night, which, of course, has a lyric that inspired the name of Scooby-Doo. Yeah, I'm glad. Scooby-Dooby-Doo. I was going to point that out, because that, that is exactly how it happened. And it's a nice... Uh, it's a nice touch. On the other hand, you know, if you're watching this film, you don't know that bit of trivia. It does feel like it's kind of out of nowhere. Well, it's again, it's one of those things for people who are into the deep, deep Hanna Barbera uh, lore. Although, and that and that comes right after kind of a, a lame, a lame-ish gag where they're they're because they're they're investigating. Uh, 
they're investigating uh, Mr. Wickle's uh, mansion because they're right. They're working under the assumption that he's the ringleader behind all the monster attacks, and they play an old wax cylinder that just so happens to have uh, uh, Baby Got Back on it, which. I think this. I think this was came out at about the same about the time that Baby Got Back stopped being a punchline and started being a song people were ready to admit that they actually liked. Unironically, which is why that gag doesn't quite play. It's also clear that that probably was not the song mentioned in the script. They just put that in because there's nothing to indicate that they're reacting to any specific piece of music. Yeah, the reaction is uh, is pretty generic. The oh so uh, how do you uh, how do you feel about the way the mystery unfolds in this movie overall? Um, it's a bit slow. I, I think the beginning is pretty good, where you know you get the the game showing up at the museum that it's going to feature you know the the costumes of the monsters they used to fight, but then um it just sort of drags you get you get a lot of the different groups separated from each other instead of working together which i don't think is in the movie's favor well and that's, at some that's point from there, the show. it's really a Every lot of different had the scene where freddy would go let's split up gang and then they would there also is a lot of um i mean it's just so many monsters it gets to be a bit exhausting in that they don't seem very special there's not much that makes the monsters really too different from each other or you don't get a good idea of how dangerous they are yeah like f- five monsters is just kind of a cabal it, i really feel like if you're gonna do this why not have an just a, an army of every scooby-doo monster ever that would have been so awesome to see tearing through the streets of coolsville And the other thing, too, it shows Coolsville is such a big city, but you don't get any huge, um, you know, you don't get, like, a, a set piece as big as, like, Ghostbusters with the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man going through the city. I mean, in fact, the the last sort of showdown scene in this film is just, like, in a warehouse. It's not... Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's in the laboratory under the uh, silver mine. Which but, like, actually... it doesn't look very inspiring. Like, it's not... Well, yeah, it's true. It doesn't look like a set piece because the silver mine looks great. The silver mine looks like something straight yes, out of Scooby Doo, yeah. but like the monster making factory, it's pretty lazy. There's like a conveyor belt and a press and a slide, and that's it. It really should be crazy. It should be as big and as complicated as the toy factory was in the beginning of the first film. Not just that. Even like the the sacrificial altar stuff at the end of the first film was more interesting. Then, yeah, where the final showdown is, is here. It's a bit disappointing. I mean, I, I was really taken out of the film where they're like, oh, no, not, you know, n- not the night ghost. Oh, not the blob ghost. And I'm like, well, why? I, I didn't really feel invested because I, I had no idea what they were capable of. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things where, like, it, it helps if you know the original show. Although, at the same time, in the original show, it those were just costumes people were wearing. But in this movie, as it turns out, they've been using occult knowledge and alchemy to literally bring these monsters to life. And that that seems so weird. It seems weird to me that there is a person disguised as a monster behind all of this, but the monsters are still real. 
that that doesn't quite jive. I feel like there should be a scientific explanation for all the monster attacks. Like it prop like it should be a cabal of all of their previous villains teaming up under a charismatic leader. Yeah, I really thought you see the evil masked figure kind of pop up with lightning behind him. And I, I like how it has a retro sort of science fiction witch doctor look to it. Oh, it but, looks um, great with like the move, yeah. the eyebrow wiggling and the creepy way its mouth moves and the and the wire hair. But I truly thought you'd get scenes where he'd be telling the monsters, you do this and you do that or or, or something, but instead he just kind of shows up to make these speeches and then disappear. Yeah, and you don't really get a, ch- and you don't really get no sense of what of like, you get no sense of who benefits from any of the monster attacks, except that it's just like, maybe if if Seth Green was the real bad guy, maybe he had better motivations. But to just have to be revenge of an of an older villain, it's it seems very it's very weak sauce. There there should be something bigger going on. Like what? If, like what if he was trying to scare everyone out of Coolsville so that the whole town could get demolished for something? Or why not have, like, Scooby-Doo get captured and he turns into a monster? I don't know. Something. Well, okay, so a, a, a bit of a, a logic problem with this whole with this whole monster thing. So, like, they show that the way they make the monsters is the costumes are put in pods, sent through this machine, doused with this wonderfully named element called Randomonium, and all the occult stuff brings them to life, you know, as a, as a monster. Um, and yet, later on in the movie... The, the big evil masked figure is riding around on a flying giant pirate ship. So how did he make that? I mean, I'm sure he can. He's apparently a master of alchemy, but at the same time, we never saw a giant vehicle-making machine. Hmm. Right, it's, um... I mean, a pirate ship even would be a, a more interesting setting for some of the scenes. But, but yeah, he de- they don't do anything with it. It's just we see him floating no, around no. on it. Oh, now one thing I do like, though, I liked I liked Velma's uh, romantic subplot. Right, so she has a heart-to-heart with... Um... Well, she has a crush on Wisley, and Wisley has a crush on her, and... Uh, a, and there's a great scene where uh, Daphne gives her a makeover so that she can go out on a, on a quote-unquote date with Wisley. And it's so great because she she puts her in this orange pleather like jumpsuit and gives her these hair extensions. <laughs> it's a wonderful character redesign. Yeah, and she looks a lot different. And I also like how she looks uncomfortable in it and she doesn't feel like she's being herself. Yeah, And you uh, get... It, it's, it's constantly squeaking and making noises as... Uh, Oh, because of the pleather, yeah. And she keeps she keeps pointing out that's not me, that's the suit. And, and I also do like you know when everything when everything goes to hell after another monster attack. I love that like she reaches for the zipper and you're and and you know everyone in the audience holds their breath. Like, oh no, are we are we going to see Velma boobs? Oh boy! And she does this zip, and her turtleneck <laughs> immediately pops out. Yeah, that was a nice gag. It's I a like great that. yeah, it's a great visual gag. <laughs> But it was a that was a fun character design. Like that was like that was that worked for me. That whole subplot. I mean, also the way they introduce Seth Green is sort of funny. Where she's looking at the museum and going like, "Oh, I remember when we fought these monsters." And then she sees Seth Green from afar, and it plays a sort of romantic music. And he's walking in slow motion, and then he trips and falls. 
at the end of it. It's a it's very endearing. Like they do. He's not a carbon copy of her, but they do seem very compatible. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. No, do you, now did you like to be kind of like you know because every every character kind of like Freddy gets his arc where he learns to be less of a glory hound and he sort of shares the mystery ink glory with everybody. But I really liked that bit where where Scooby is like in in when they're in their most desperate hour, trapped in the mine with the ghost, and they're trying to get the control panel for the ghost machine or for the monster machine plugged back in with reversed polarity so that it destroys all the monsters. And Shaggy's kind of talking about his anxiety and about how, you know, he and Scooby don't add anything to the team. And Daphne has that, I'm sorry, uh, Velma has that great that great speech about how, really, because I didn't think I added anything to the team. I thought, you know, you guys are so happy and nothing stops you. And, like, I, 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 like, I like Shaggy and Scooby kind of realizing where they fit in, in this whole ecosystem of Mysteries, Inc., it's a nice scene. I could have used more of it. I felt like uh, Shaggy and Scooby get the short shrift in this movie. Really? Because they get a lot of screen time. They get a lot of screen time, but like a lot of it's like them like farting or eating. Okay, yeah, the fart jokes or... didn't work for me. And you get that like a few different times. You do it initially where they're farting in the kitchen and then they're burping or something and, and then uh, people walk in. And then they they fart light light uh, use it to light a bad guy on fire. Yeah, and that's after you know Shaggy does this. You know Velma smells it, and Shaggy does this whole thing. Well, he does that when he's nervous, really, because he hasn't done that before when he's nervous, and he's been running from monsters. Um, one piece of shtick that I thought I was gonna hate, but it really grew on me, is when they're examining the, the laboratory and. Shaggy and Scooby start drinking like potions in a refrigerator and keep like changing into mm, different right. different characters. You know, Scooby becomes a super genius and tries to cure them. Uh, Shaggy becomes a chick, then he becomes like really buff and dumb. But there's a there's a great bit where Scooby turns into the, into the Tasmanian devil. And I like it's the 2D animated Tasmanian devil. I like they didn't try to do it with 3D graphics. Thank goodness. But uh, oh, but uh, Shaggy's body double uh, for uh, for when when he has a woman's body is uh, Nazanin uh, Afshinjam, who is an Iranian uh, Canadian entertainer. She was a former oh, okay. Miss World from Canada. That must have been a strange day on set. Ah, uh, yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> But yeah, gonna I, that, be a, that scene a, really grew on me. I liked, I liked just kind of the bit of cartoon logic where you can just drink potions and crazy stuff will happen. Yeah, I mean, I think it's better than what we saw in the first movie where they're switching bodies and it kind of goes on for too long. At least in this one, it's more of a manic pace, which helps. Um, strangely at enough, the they end get of, all the jokes yeah. and they need. It doesn't overstay its welcome. Right. At the end of the movie, we get a dance sequence, which... Um, yeah, yeah, this this comes after the point when we realize that DreamWorks was going to end every damn CGI movie this way. <laughs> and all the DreamWorks imitators. And if you're imitating DreamWorks when it comes to CGI, you th- that you may want to reevaluate a thing or two. Although, yeah, I do like I do like this is a funky groovy gang. I do like seeing them get funky to thank you for letting me be myself. Right? It's um, 
And then one of the performers is Ruben Studard, who is a judge in American Idol. Oh, yeah. Well, he was originally a contestant, wasn't he? Like he was one of the first people to kind of make a name for himself doing that show? Um, yeah, he won the second season. That's right, yeah. But the oh no! What did you think when they're when they're kind of have their darkest moment and they find their old mystery solving clubhouse? I that that didn't do much for me. I think at that point, I felt the movie was starting to drag. I I it worked for me because they had that mystery solving montage. But then you cut to Shaggy and Scooby outside of the clubhouse, listening to the pop music inside. Like, oh man, they're having a montage without us. That was a good line. I like that. I don't know, I, I like that kind of fourth fourth wall breaking thing. I mean, I did think of, you know, James Gunn being the writer of this, and now lately he's been doing the Guardians of the Galaxies movies. Mm-hmm. I do see a connection in that in Guardians of the Galaxies you have these sort of goofy characters that have these monologues that are sort of short, but they have a lot of information packed in there about their motivations. And that's something you see in here, and it's something you certainly see in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, did um, speaking of like uh, monologues, I do like the part where they track down Old Man Wickles in the mine, and he's giving a presentation to investors because he wants to reopen the mine as a mine-themed summer camp, where they're gonna tr- where they're gonna trick parents into paying them to have their kids work in a mine and then sell the silver. Right, where it's like in free labor. That was, that a, was a funny bit, was, and was I, do, I do like that. Like the the crooked the crooked guy who is dressed up in a monster is trying to do a legitimate like business deal. I do like that subversion. Yeah, I could have used more of that. That was a fun moment. Um, I guess this is only in the home video versions, but after the credits, I was going to bring this up. Yeah, Scooby Doo plays the Scooby Doo Game Boy Advance video game. And then he gives you a secret password you can use. Which, oh god, could you... Could, and I, I guess that was advertised? Because this was long before, like, uh, post-credit sequences were a common thing in franchise films. But, like, who, who was waiting for that? And I was wondering, does the code do anything good in the game? Oh, it must, but I, 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 try, I did some cursory uh, pre-search and I could not find anything about what that code did. I see. Oh, they it's know maybe a, it, we do. It, we should maybe we should find that game on an emulator and try that code and see what we what pulls up. Yeah, maybe it's um, it's just so strange. Well, what a strange thing. I mean, I mean, it's the equivalent of like having a a scene at the end of Iron Man three and Iron Man drinks a eats a McDonald's cheeseburger and, and rubs his tummy and goes, mmm, this is delicious. Well, no, no, just like the idea that you got to get a piece of information from the movie and then plug that piece of information into another piece of tie-in media. It, it makes me wonder, when you start the game, does it give you a little thing like, watch the movie for a secret code? Like, does the game prompt you? I would think at least with an advertisement in the instruction manual. I don't know, now you got me wondering. I'll have to look into that and see. Um, Hopefully I think we, we'll have some, talked... some in-depth reporting about this next episode. Yep. Um, 
Do you have anything else you want to talk about with Scooby Doo Two Monsters Unleashed? No, I mean overall, I think it's I think it's re- really I think it's it's we've covered it pretty well. Just you know, I once again need to state my if, and if anyone can can confirm this, you know, my theory that Seth Green was supposed to be the villain, but test audiences didn't like it. So if anybody can confirm that. Uh, or deny it. I would love to hear from you. You know, you, uh, at Internet Mayor on Twitter. Um, oh, actually, I did like that thing though. When when it's revealed that uh, Heather Jasper Howe is Doctor Jonathan Jacobo, there's this great thing where like her cameraman's like, "You you were this old scientist the whole time, yeah, but we cuddled." I, yes. I got a little chuckle out of that. I also like uh, near the end you get a scene where. They take the mask off the reporter, and then uh, they try to take the mask off the sidekick, the cameraman. Oh yeah, he's just—he doesn't have a mask. He says "ouch," which is nice. Um, Let's see. So, what do I give Scooby Doo Two? Is it sequel yes or sequel no? I would say sequel no. I mean, this is weird. I said sequel no to both Scooby Doo movies, and I think this one makes me like the first one more. But I don't really like either of them that much. I like them. I disliked them both for different reasons. But I think this certainly the effects are better. Um, I think the mystery is a little better. But I thought you get more uh, interesting set pieces in the first one. Hmm. I'm, what about I'm you? going to give it a a sequel. Yes, if only because this captures the spirit, the characters, and the structure of Scooby Doo better than the first film. Uh, it's it's a it's a sequel yes because I'm a huge fan of Scooby Doo and I think this movie does a better job of honoring the Scooby Doo legacy. I realize that not everybody's going to come to this movie with with those feelings and those people probably won't like it. But for me, it is sequel yes. Well, there you go. Now it's time. But despite to... its flaws, it kept me entertained the whole way through. Now it's time to pitch a sequel. Ooh. Thrasher, what's yours? So, uh, so my my sequel will be uh, Scooby Doo Three Monsters Unchained, and so uh, in this one, uh, you know, due to America's rash of people dressing up like monsters uh, and and you know trying to commit real estate fraud, um, this new prison opens up, and it's supposed to be an escape proof prison where no people who dress like monsters will ever be able to get out until their sentences are served. And to prove that it's legitimate, uh, they have uh, asked the Scooby-Doo gang to come to its grand opening and to just sort of prove that it is quote-unquote safe. Uh, and so, like, a lot of the inmates are people the Scooby-Doo gang uh, has, uh, has you know, brought to justice. And in fact, when they go there, they will be delivering their 100th unmasked person uh, to be dropped off. Now, the catch is, though... Just before they they you know they tour the grounds, we get some comedy seeing them interact with the prisoners and the prisoners' lawyers, uh, and we even get some celebrity lawyers involved. I don't know what celebrity lawyers are still alive because I think Johnny Cochran probably would have been dead by the time this would have come come out. But we'll find we'll find somebody. Um, so after when it gets to the point during the tour where they would sign off and say that this is a this is a great prison that's going to keep these people locked away, there's a power outage. And it turns out the prison's high-tech security system, uh, if this, if things are disrupted, say, by a power outage, the whole prison goes on lockdown. However, the security system's been sabotaged, because once it goes on lockdown, 
all the cells open. So the Scooby-Doo gang are trapped in this high-tech prison with all of the people they've put away. And those people want revenge. And in fact, they're, and in fact, at first they think they're just going to have to find their own way to escape the escape food prison to get away from all their enemies, but then a ghost shows up. Like a creepy, like, electrified gangster ghost. Like, like a Scolari Brothers sort of situation. Uh... It turns out, of course, that this ghost is, again, a fake. It's a person uh, It's a person in a mask. Uh, the short of it is, turns out this whole prison's a fraud. Uh, the person who, uh, the prison's gonna, gonna lose money. It's gonna bankrupt the guy who put the money forward. So he's disguised himself as a ghost to ruin the prison because the prison has, like, monster insurance so that he can collect a big insurance benefit when monsters destroy uh, the prison. And, in fact... Uh, by the terms of his monster insurance, people disguised as monsters count as monsters. Mm. And in fact, one one of the comedic bits about this movie is that we will see the inmates like try to make new monster costumes out of whatever's available in the prison. And that'll lead to some funny bits. There's also going to be a group therapy room with like some props for therapy that they'll try to turn into monster costumes. So that'll be that'll be pretty fun. And what's the name of it? Uh, Scooby-Doo 3 Monsters Unchained. Unchained, okay. So my idea would have to do with um, Scooby-Doo is uh, is sniffing around and he finds this uh, this potion and he thinks it smells like a strawberry milkshake. Just so like in kind this of film. Pours it, just like in this film, right. And so he uh, he pours it into glasses that already have a milkshake in it. He sort of doctors up the milkshakes for his friends, the Mystery Incorporated team. And when they all drink it, Scooby-Doo becomes a man, a human, huh. and the rest of the Scooby-Doo creatures, or not creatures, the rest of the Mystery <laughs> Incorporated gain, become monsters. And now Scooby-Doo is a man, but he can't speak English because he's a dog. His best friends are monsters. How does he deal with that dilemma? Now, who who do you think would play the human Scooby? You know, I think someone with a lot of um, a lot of physica- physicality. What am I saying? As Popeye concert, would right? say, physicality. Uh, Popeye doesn't sound like that either. Um, Oh, maybe a uh, John C. Riley. Wait, that's not the guy's name, is it? I could. Uh... Oh no, you're talking about the, the guy who plays Doctor Stephen Brule. Yes. You know, strangely enough, I could see him doing it. You know, for your mystery, dummy. He would say at some point. And so the. Um... You'd have CG, of course, I think, with the the monsters, and they would, I think, accidentally cause havoc, so the police would be after them as well. And you also would have a a group that's sort of a rival, uh, up-and-coming mystery game. Now, would they be based on another group of mystery-solving teens from a Hanna-Barbera cartoon? Why not use the same, actually have them be the, uh, the group from Jabberjaw? (laughs) <laughs> the Neptunes, yeah. The Neptunes, yeah. This would be a crossover with with Jabberjaw, of course, as a CG shark that sounds like Curly from the Three Stooges. 
And um, so you get this sort of crossover action happening. And there, because of the potion, there's like a timeline, a ticking time thing where if they don't um, restore themselves through proper form at the end of the day, Scooby-Doo will be stuck as a man and his, his friends will be stuck as monsters. So... And it would be called Scooby Man would be the title. <laughs> but not Martin Dew. No, not, not Martin Dew. Although I think he might make a cameo somewhere. Now I something that, that is is curious, and there may be no way to answer this, is I always wondered what kind of Scooby Doo movie a Shecky Spielboig would have made. Oh, it's, I think we get we have him on the line. Oh, really? Okay, uh, Shecky, we're trying to tune you in. Yes, yes. I, I, I are doing a sequel fast too. Uh, yeah, uh, you're talking about a dog. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the Scoob, the live action Scooby Doo films. Did you ever try to make a movie like this? Uh, funny you should mention that. I did. This was in. Uh, let's see. When did the first one come out? Is it 2002? Okay, so 2003 came out with mine called uh, Scooby, Scooby Doe, D-O. One less so than the movie version. And the Scooby Doe, he likes to eat dough. Uh, he's filmed in a donut factory. We just took a, a dog and threw him in a pile of donuts and filmed it for two hours. You didn't we had kill to go that dog, five- did you? Well, we had to go through five dogs. Uh, it turns out they can't eat bread that much. And the uh, five donuts, uh, especially the raw dough, if you get my drift, it makes the dogs explode. We figured that out three dogs in. But, and yet you continued for two more dogs. We did because, uh, you know, we had to make it feature length. It had to be at least 72 minutes. So, uh, as they say, the, the show must go on. We, uh... Now, was it like like one of those things like Milo and Otis where it's filmed overseas so you didn't have to have a Humane Society disclaimer? They got Humane Society uh, disclaimers. We didn't know that. We told the owners uh, their dog went to the farm afterwards and was doing just fine. Of course, they were dead in a pile of donuts, but they didn't need to know that. Now, now I heard rumors that those donuts were served as part of craft services on your follow-up film. They were, that was in the uh, follow-up film, Scooby-Doo 2. Not Monsters. Scooby-Doo No, Scooby-Doo 2, Monsters Leashed. <laughs> and uh, in that one, we took dogs and uh, stapled, uh, stapled metal to their faces so they look like monsters. That one, we had 12 dogs die. Very tragic. Oh, well, sh- sh- uh, wow, Shecky. Uh, I, I, I am sorry to have had you on this week. <laughs> it's all right. You know, we we're going to do a third one, but, um, people thought my backyard smelled like dead dog and I had to flee for a bit. So hey, maybe, that's a maybe we'll, yeah, I, uh, it, it's a pun because dogs like, uh, like it when I get bit. <laughs> I bet they do, Shecky, but at least okay. it's kosher. Well, I, I got to go back. Speaking of kosher, I got to go and uh, have a nice uh, piece of bacon topped with cheese. Well, as long as you don't have milk with that. Finished off by a glass of frosty milk. Oh!
Shucky, you did it again. Of course. Okay, catch you sometime later, Thrasher. It's been an experience. Okay, so that happened. Um, hmm. I don't know Good why we Shucky. keep having him on. He gets like I, one of these. One of these episodes is going to be used as evidence in a trial against him. I think so. It wouldn't take much. Um, now we're going to move on to what you're watching. I caught a movie on HBO. I've been sort of getting caught up on the DC movies. Oh yeah. And um, you know, recently I mentioned watching Batman v Superman. This time around, I watched Suicide Squad. Huh? What did you think? Have you seen it? Yes, yes, I have. Okay, so um, I'm not going to try to really spoil it because it's a newer movie, but I liked it better than Batman vs. Superman. That being said, I think it was still incomprehensible. I can agree with you there. Out of all the recent DC movies, it's the one that I despise the least. And the character Captain Flag, the actor was bugging me who it was, and at the end I realized it was our friend Joel Kinnaman, oh, who was yeah. the lead in the RoboCop film from uh, several the, uh, years the third ago. Film? No, the the fourth film. Oh, the fourth, that's right, yes. The most recent one, the remake. My mistake. Um, and I, I think, you know, I actually like the beginning where they, they sort of introduce the different characters with these ridiculous statistics. I, I think by far, um, Harley Quinn was the most interesting part, but I really did not like the Joker. Well, he he never really got a chance to do anything Jokery. Like, instead of, instead of having menace, he just seemed unsavory. And like it was Margot parts... Robbie that played um, hmm? Harley Quinn. I thought she was good. Will Smith was okay. Um, well, overall, I think the movie was very well cast. It's just the cast was, for the most part, used horribly. The, the best parts were when they had time to breathe. Like, I love that scene where they're just chilling in the bar. Like, I would watch a whole movie of just supervillains in a bar talking to each other. Hmm. That was the only time they were allowed to have anything approaching depth. I really thought um, Killer Croc, I did not enjoy too much. Well, he he's just there. He's one more monster in a movie full of too many people. And it's like every joke is like a pretty stereotypical black joke. Like they ask him what he wants at the end and he says B-E-T. Yeah, that was a that was a weird turn. Because you can get to see like, I mean, the, the big problem is you have this team with all these characters they're trying to introduce, with the exception of like Harley Quinn, Deadshot, and probably uh, Flag. You really don't get much an idea of who these characters are, aside from perhaps like their weapons or whatever. And it's then just. And then on top of that, to throw in Katana halfway through. Hmm. Who I would like to point out isn't a villain. Oh, no? No, she is a she's a uh, Japanese superhero and one of the founding members of the Outsiders. I liked how she looked in the movie. I thought it was a neat design. She was the only character whose design was taken straight from the comic book. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. They barely touched her design. I mean, she, she came right off the page. Which I mean, almost uh, makes the me way, feel like yeah. they added her so late in the process they didn't have time to design a new look for her. Well, and with the Enchantress, the way that she speaks and moves around reminded me, oh, excuse me, reminded me a lot of Aaliyah in Queen of the Damned. 
Well, they, yeah, they do give her this nice kind of ethereal way to to move. Like they they make her seem ancient and mystical and inhuman, but she just doesn't have she doesn't have anything to do aside from eventually building her own giant blue space laser. Although I do want to point out, there's dialogue that refers to the color of the laser. The color of the laser never matches the color described in the dialogue. How do they, what's the difference? They keep, wow, look at that blue light! But the light's green. Hmm. I think there's, I think there's um, one other reference to its color, but it's never accurate. It was nice you saw Batman and the Flash briefly in this. Well, when the best thing you can say about a movie is what cameos it has, that's not a mark of quality. The movie was not great, but I think, you know, the, the pacing, it didn't, tell, it didn't take itself quite as seriously as, say, um, Batman versus Superman did. But it still kind of took itself too seriously. Kind of. I mean, a big plot hole I realized early on is... Um, so there's this villain, the Enchantress. She's kept in check by um, they Viola have Davis. They mummified heart in a, in a box. Yeah, in a suitcase. Uh, played by Amanda Waller. Or, no, Viola Davis plays Amanda Waller. I thought she was pretty good in this, actually. Again, very well cast. And she went... And, um, you know, and they make a big deal about how the Enchantress can phase through things. And it's like, well, wait a second. Why doesn't she phase her hand through the suitcase to grab the heart? Well, I, I will take it even further uh, because, okay. you know, the Enchantress, she exists because she's able to possess uh, June Moon's body and needs she needs her heart to be at her full power. And, you know, she's awakened because June Moon opens an urn in this ancient temple. Well, they say where they found the heart. It was in the same ancient temple. So when the Enchantress possessed June for the first time, why didn't she just grab her heart? Right. She just left it lying around for other people to find? Don't know. That's a good point. But the, the movie's full of things like that, and like it makes it really it makes Amanda Waller seem incompetent, and it's the same problem I had with uh, one of the many problems I had with Man of Steel and with Batman v Superman. Uh, everything would be better if the main characters did nothing. If Amanda Waller hadn't, like the world is worse off for having the Suicide Squad in it, just as the world is worse off for having a Superman and a Batman. Like, mm. all of the problems in this movie happen because of Amanda Waller. And she's not supposed to be that careless. She's supposed to have a ruthless mind that gets shit done. Right. So what's something you've been watching? Well, this being the Summer of Gun, uh, I saw Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. How was it? I had a really good time. I love I love seeing uh, you know, jump jumping from Suicide Squad to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Uh, I love seeing a movie that revels in its source material. What did you think about? Um, you think you could see this one without watching the original? You know, it's self it's self contained enough 
you probably could, like most of it, you probably could watch without seeing the first one. However, um, it because it does delve more into Peter Quill's uh, Star Lord's background. I feel like you need you need to at least see the int- the opening scene of the first movie before you see this to really kind of get the emotional weight of some of it. Uh, what do you think about the soundtrack? Very fun. Uh, good use of diegetic music as well. And I also like I like that the song Brandy, which typically in pop culture is. is it's the punchline, it's the musical punchline you use when you feel like musical punchlines, uh, excuse me, uh, involving, oh crap, I just had it on the tip of my tongue, musical punchlines involving the Pina Colada song or two played out, and yet they turn that into a plot point. It's very nice. Okay. Although I will say, as, as much of a punchline as people typically treat the song Brandy, I do like that song without any irony. It's a good one. I've known a few people that have main, named their kid Brandy. Uh, the after that song? Yep. Oh, cool. Which is, actually, so, that probably means I'm going to end up naming one of my kids Baby Got Back. BGB. Now that would be a cool nickname. Yeah. Uh, All right. So, next time on Sequel Cast 2, we'll be looking at a different series. We're going to. A very different series. Yeah, very different and complete opposite direction. We'll be looking at the four theatrical Hellraiser films. So, next week, we'll look at Hellraiser, followed by Hellbound Hellraiser 2, Hellraiser 3, and Hellraiser. um, Was it Revelation? Oh, shit. I should know the title. That's embarrassing. Revelation sounds right, but I'm not going to look it up. I'm going to treat myself into not looking it up. I will look it up just because I want people to um, get it right. Blah, 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 blah. Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth, and then the fourth one is Hellraiser Bloodlines. We'll be looking at the the theatrical Hellraiser films the next uh, month or so on sequel cast 2. Um, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Follow us, uh, the show, at SequelCast2. Leave a review on iTunes. Just look up SequelCast2 and leave a review. Uh, Thrasher, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. All right. And uh, next time, as I said, we'll cover the original Hellraiser film written and directed by Clive Barker. It's from 1987. Oh, man. So, um, for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. Saying, Thank you for letting me be myself. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.